All right. Got all logistics out of the way here. Now we can get started. Um, why don't we open up to the book of Acts again? And uh, we're going to be in chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 7 tonight. Let's go ahead and read that, and then we'll ask God's blessing upon our time in His Word tonight. So, starting in verse 1, Acts chapter 6, it says this But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek-speaking believers complained about the Hebrew-speaking believers, saying that their widows are being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. And so the twelve called a meeting of all the believers, and they said, We apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. And so, brothers, select seven men who are well-respected and are full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will give them this responsibility, and then we apostles can spend our time in prayer and teaching the Word. Everyone liked the idea, and they chose the following. Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Philip, Pecurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas of Antioch, an earlier convert of the Jewish faith. These seven were presented to the apostles who prayed for them as they laid their hands on them. And so God's message continued to spread. And the number of believers greatly increased in Jerusalem, and many of the Jewish priests were converted too. Let's pray. God, now we thank you again just for our time together, for your word, for this book that we hold in our hands, God. And I just pray tonight that, that we are strengthened through it. Father, you know each one of us. You know what we need, whether it's to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be convicted. God, I don't know, but you do, Lord, because you know our hearts. And so, Holy Spirit, I take, pray that you would just take over. Um, just use my mouth, Lord, um, to speak to your people, and, and I pray that you would move tonight, and above all, that you'd be honored and glorified in this place, Lord. We love you, we praise you, we thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. Um, hey, Corey, if you could take my game down here, there's a real bad feedback in the thing up here. Perfect, thank you. So, um, when it comes to business or any type of organization, Generally speaking, um, especially in our day and age, one of the big goals and, and, markers, of six, and, and markers of success is growth. Um, businesses want to grow financially. Um, franchises desire to grow financially. They desire to grow even bigger to, to different places. Um, growth is pretty much the desired nature of just about every business, and, and before a business or franchise can get to that point, and certainly before they will be in a place that they're able to sustain growth, they have to make sure that their internal structure is in a healthy enough place to sustain that growth. Because if a business or a franchise grows too fast, too quickly, um, the results inevitably are going to be problems. They will experience what's often called growth pains, and until they get their structural issues um, taken care of, those businesses will either stop growing and oftentimes decline, but if they can get those issues taken care of, it'll put themselves in a, bit, a position to where they, they can grow to, to new heights and, and, and succeed in new ways that they never thought even possible. And although we as a church are certainly not a business, what's true of business in many ways is true of the church, as we will see in Acts chapter 6 tonight. So what we've seen so far in the, in the book of Acts is that this church, when it started off, it started off with a bang. I mean, like big time. You know, there's this church within the first few days went from 120 members to literally thousands. And um, from that time, um, I was reading MacArthur's commentary this week, and any estimates within three to six months of Pentecost when that church started, that the church was running somewhere, somewhere upwards of 20,000 people 
at this time when you consider all the men, women, and children. And, and so you're talking about extremely, extremely rapid growth. Now, from what we've seen so far, this was not only a huge church, but it was also a very, very diverse church. Uh, the first century church of Jerusalem was filled with men and women and children, the young and the old, people that were from Jerusalem locally, people that were from Israel, but also people that were completely outside of Judea altogether. And if you can imagine between uh, the incredible amount of people that were there, the thousands that were there, I- including the diversity and the nature of that diversity amongst the people, I tell you, problems were just bound to occur. And that's kind of what we see here today. Now, now, at first, I'm sure these people were, like, astounded by what was taking place there. I mean, these miracles were happening. I mean, people were getting saved all over the place. And I'm sure um, they were excited, just always kind of wondering, you know, what, what God was going to do next. But as we saw a couple weeks ago when we talked about Ananias and Sapphira, where God is moving, you can always be sure that Satan's going to be close behind And that's kind of what we're going to see here today. Now, although these people here in this first church were not perfect, certainly, in our story today, like, there's no indication that there was any type of sin involved in what we're going to be talking about tonight. What they were experiencing was growth pains. Like, the church had gotten so big so fast that some, some structural issues began to kind of take place amongst the people, and Satan used this opportunity to pounce. But to their credit, as we're going to see, the church, the church rose to the challenge. They, they addressed the issues that need to be addressed and moved on, and because of that, Satan um, lost, which is what we always want to see. Amen? So as we get into verse 1 here, we see that the church began to grow rapidly, multiplying, and as that happened, there was some rumbling, there was some discontent, because in this church, um, there was Again, it was diverse, right? You had like Hebrews that were there from Judea. When I say Judea, it's the Roman province of Israel because Rome controlled Israel at the time. So you had people that were there local that were very traditional in nature. You know, I mean, they were very traditional as far as the Jewish culture was concerned and everything. But there was also these people that had come in for Pentecost that had gotten saved that had kind of stuck around. And these were people from these Greek-speaking countries, places where the, the Greek culture had very, very much kind of taken over. Some of your Bibles may call them Hellenistic Jews. Um, and so the idea is that they were both Christians, they, they, they were both Jews, but they both converted to Christianity, but they were, they were very, very different as far as the culture uh, that they were used to. Um, one of the commentators I like to read, David Guzik, he said this about him. He said, to oversimplify, Hebrews tended to regard Hellenists, so the, the local Jews regarded the Greek-speaking Jews as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture, and Hellenists regarded the Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. Um, that was, and that was all, 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 there was already a natural suspicion between the two groups, and Satan tried to take advantage of that standing suspicion. And so, again, you're talking about like a breeding ground of controversy. Not only were there lots and lots of people, people from very, very different walks of life together, and Satan used that. Now, one question we should ask ourselves is, 
Why weren't the Jews from them surrounding countries like living in, in Israel? Like, aren't they supposed to be there in the first place? Why were they even out there? Well, this kind of goes back, if, you, um, if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when, when Israel was one country, there was a time when they got split, right? So you had the, kind of the northern part, which was Israel, the southern part, which was Judea, and, 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 and through the course of, of the centuries, the, 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 the top ten tribes got taken over. The Assyrians came in and kind of took them away, and, and eventually the southern tribes um, were taken away by the Babylonians, and, and they were pretty much much taken captive and gone for a, for a number of years. Well, then the Persian Empire came in and took over, and many of the Jews were then released to go back to Israel. And that's where you read the books of like Nehemiah and, and Ezra, and, and so the, the, you know, the walls of the city of Jerusalem were rebuilt, and the temple was rebuilt. But not all the Jews came back. There were many Jews that had, because there was literally, I mean, we're talking centuries that had gone by, they had established themselves, they had businesses, they were very, very comfortable where they're at, so many of them stayed there, but they still came back because they were Jews to be a part of these festivals and these feast days that were there. And so that's kind of how you see what, what had happened um, as far as why some were there and why there weren't, why there was this, this controversy was even there. But like I so said, when Pentecost happened and, and multitudes of those people had given their lives to Christ and got saved, those ones from those foreign countries stayed there in Jerusalem. And so they were very much a part of this church. And if you can remember back to Acts chapter 4, we saw that people were, were selling property and homes and giving money to the apostles to take care of the ministry needs of the church. And one of those huge ministry needs was taking care of widows. So during this, this time, um, widows were completely dependent on other people to take care of them. Like if they had like immediate family, it was the family's responsibility. But if the family wasn't there to take care of some of these widows, it was the responsibility of the people as a whole to take care of them. Now before this time, um, most of it probably went through the local um, tabernacles or the local temple, right? Or um, the synagogues, I should say, the local temple. Um, but now that they were here a part of the church, that responsibility fell upon the church to take care of these widows. Now, to the credit, to credit of many of these Christians who were part of that church, I mean, they were sacrificing greatly to make sure that the funds were there, right? I mean, they were selling homes, they were selling property, giving to the apostles, and a lot of that money was being used to take care of these widows. So generosity wasn't the issue. And, and the, the issue that was taking place here is that the, the Greek-speaking widows were not being taken care of. When, when the food distribution was being handed out, they were kind of being left out. But what's kind of clear here is that it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like there was some type of discrimination taking place because they were Greek-speaking and not locals, right? It really wasn't that at all. What this was was a simple structural issue that kind of had risen up in the local church. The, the apostles, too, really, well, what happened? The apostles became a bottleneck. Like everything that was happening in the church was, was funneling through them, and the problem was they, they had grown to a point where they could no longer take care of all them responsibilities, and some discontent started to take place as a result. Now you think about what the apostles were doing. Like they were preaching, they were teaching people day after day. They no doubt had to deal with them issues that arose. They, they had to deal with the religious leaders. They were constantly on them on a continual basis. More than likely, I mean, we, we don't know, but more than likely, the apostles probably had families of their own. I'm sure some of them were married. Whether they had kids or not, we don't really know. But I mean, the, problem, the point was they still had lives, right? And so we're trying to take care of 20,000 people and take care of all the food distribution and everything else. And 
It wasn't something that happened intentionally. It wasn't like they were intentionally trying to disregard these women. There just wasn't enough hours in the day to take care of everything that they needed to take care of. So it came time where the only answer was to delegate. Like they had to give some of this responsibility up and, and bring some people in. Now, if you remember back in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, do you remember when the, when, the, when the Israelites came out of Egypt? And they estimate there was probably somewhere between one and three million that came out of Egypt when, when Moses kind of led them out. And you, and you have this scene where, where Moses is like, all he is doing is dealing with people from, from morning until night, dealing with dis- disputes amongst the people. And like, he's not getting anywhere. I mean, it's just chaos is kind of brewing. And um, Moses was so busy dealing with like menial disputes that, that it kept him from being the leader that God had called him to be. And that was until he, he got some really, really good advice from his father-in-law Jethro who told him like look son what you're doing is not good it's not sustainable you need to delegate some of this responsibility out you need to you need to find some men to 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 put over these things so that you can be the leader that God has called you to be so that's exactly what Moses did he put some men in charge of different size groups and and the crisis was averted and that's almost exactly the same thing as we see here the apostles knew that they couldn't continue doing what they were doing. And so we see in verses 2 through 4, they're like, look, I mean, our job is to teach the Word of God. Like, we have to pray. We need to be preaching and teaching and studying. We cannot be taking care of a food program for all these people. And so here's what we need you to do. He told the people, look, we need you to find seven men that are full of wisdom, that are full of the Spirit, and we need to put them over this so that we can focus on the things that we're supposed to be focused on that God has called us to do. As we think about that, it wasn't that the food distribution wasn't an important thing to the apostles. It was. Like they genuinely cared about these women, and it wasn't like they were thinking this task was below them or something. It really was just a structural thing. They didn't have time to take care of it anymore. And what had kind of happened in their ministry is there, there, there began kind of this tug-of-war between meeting the physical needs of the people and meeting the spiritual needs of the people. That they couldn't do it anymore. Like their their main job was to feed the spiritual needs, to, to 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 give them spiritual food by teaching them the word of God, so they could no longer do both. Because by doing both, they were both suffering. And just as a quick little application point, I'll say this: Anytime you say yes to something, you are by default saying no to something else. Right? And so it, it's good to keep that in mind. We hate saying no, especially if you're a servant. Like when people ask you to do something, whatever, it's like, oh, I want to be able to do that. And we say yes far too much because every time we say yes, by default, we say no to something else. So what was the solution? The solution was delegation. They needed some people that they could trust to help them so they could keep praying, keep on preaching. And this was important. I mean, you think what the apostles were dealing with like, they had the religious leaders in Israel coming up against them they were dealing with. They had Satan coming up against them they were dealing with. On top of that, they were trying to keep peace amongst thousands of people. You think maybe they needed prayer just a little bit? Like, they needed to spend some time with God. They needed the Lord's wisdom to be able to, to handle this thing correctly. Absolutely. And so they needed the time to be able to spend ample time in prayer with the Lord so they could have the wisdom to lead. And preaching was obviously something that was important because of the 20,000 Christians there, the vast majority of them were just spiritual babies. They knew very, very little of Jesus. They knew very little of his teaching, let alone how it connected to the Word of God. 
And so think about the, the insurmountable task that these that these apostles these apostles had because like they were like your Old Testament is like is like that much compared to what they wrote here and and they spent their time like teaching this and connecting all the dots about how Jesus was in all of these things and and they were preparing these people for life and teaching them the Word of God and, and, and the importance of Christ and how He intersects all these different things. And it, as we're going to see in a few weeks, that's really important because it's very, very shortly after this that they no longer had the apostles there to teach them. Like they were dispersed all over the place. And so what they were doing was absolutely essential. And the only way they were going to do that is to be able to delegate some of their responsibility. Um, but um, it couldn't be just anybody. Um, they had to be people um, that were qualified, right? They, they had to be people, um, th- th- these men, that he described them as people that were full of spirit, people that were, that were full of wisdom, because think about it. They were given a huge responsibility that could either make or break the church. They'd be in charge of managing the needs of lots and lots of people, managing lots and lots of money. And the other thing that we don't think about is once they've been put in a position of authority in the church, they had a big giant bullseye painted on their back that Satan now had a new target to take on, right? And so these couldn't have just been any men. They had to be men that were qualified. And this is a kind of a side note. This really is the kind of the first time we see the position of deacon in the church. Really, these were the first deacons that were, that were called into the local church. And in the Greek language, I mean, I don't do this often, but the word servant is this word diakono. Um, but later on in, in, in first, first Timothy and Titus, when, when we actually see the qualifications for the actual deacon, it's the word diakonos. And so we're talking about the position, the office of deacon inside of the church. And the apostles no doubt knew this was going to be a challenging job, so they gave four qualifications one of the qualifications we see here is that it had to be a man. Now, it's not that women didn't have the, didn't have the capability, um, but when it came to this position of authority in the church, in God's order of things, there are positions that are held for men in the church. And according to the New Testament, there are really two positions um, scripturally that are, that are reserved for men. One of them is the, the office of deacon, um, and the other one is the office of pastor, bishop, um, overseer. It's all kind of the same position. You can, I'm not going to read all the qualifications tonight, but they're in the First Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. Um, but they're specifically required to be men. In fact, it's one of the very first requirements. They must be a man. Now, is it because women aren't capable? No, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with a woman's capability. It has nothing to do with, with, with um, any type of um, thing like that as far as issue. It's just simply it's God's given order to things. Now, there's a lot of churches that, quite frankly, don't listen. They, they use verses like Galatians 3.23 that says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so they use that verse completely out of context to say that you can have women pastors, you can have women deacons. Well, that context of that passage is so often used is used in the context of the gospel. It has absolutely nothing to do with the office of pastor or deacon. And so here we have chosen, because we want to be according to Scripture, um, that, that that's who we will pick forever, <laughs> as long as I'm here at least. Um, it, it really is an important thing to make sure we're following the Lord and following Scripture in this. Another thing um, that we see, one of the qualifications, is that they need to be well-respected by 
the people. It's interesting that the apostles didn't do the picking. They sent the people to go pick their own leaders. And I think there really was just a practical reason for this because they couldn't have known everybody. When you're, when, you're, when you're in the tens of thousands of people that short amount of time, like they, they literally could not have known who was super qualified and who wasn't. And so they told the people, look, you're the ones that know them. You pick them. Bring them to us and we'll choose from these men. So there were people that were respected by the people, also people that were men that were full of the Holy Spirit. Um, the idea that this wasn't a popularity contest, it wasn't a, a political assignment, whoever these men were needed to exhibit that they had a strong relationship with the Lord. Like they couldn't be men that were easily entangled in sin or super temperamental. They couldn't be men who were selfish or money hungry. Um, these need to be men that were controlled by the Spirit of God. What does that look like? We can go to Galatians 5 and talk about the fruit of the Spirit, right? These men exhibited um, love and joy and peace and patience, right? And, and kindness and, and goodness and, and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. So there were men of character. There, there were men who, who, who were moral people that, that walked according to the Word of God, that weren't easily angered, that, that weren't greedy, right? They were men that could be trusted, Men controlled by the Spirit of God and also men that were full of wisdom. The idea is they had the ability to manage people and manage tasks well. And this was really important because they were put in charge of a lot of people and a lot of money. Now, as we think of um, verse 5, as we talk about this, the, the people that they picked, one of them was a man named Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. We're going to get to know Stephen um, real well here in a couple weeks after Easter. We're going to see his story. Um, one of them was also Philip, which we're all going to see here shortly in the book of Acts. But the rest of them we really don't know a lot about. Um, some church history says Procurus ended up being kind of a scribe for the Apostle John later in his life. But when it comes to, to the other ones, like we, we really don't know anything about them. But it is really interesting that they chose the people that they did. Because remember, this church was kind of split between Greek Jews and local Jews. And what's really interesting about um, the, the, the people they picked here is that 100%, all seven of them were Greek-speaking Jews. None of them were local. But in this, like, you can kind of see the heart of that first century church. Like, the, the conflict really had nothing to do with people's background. There wasn't discrimination happening. These widows weren't being ignored intentionally. This was just purely a logistical issue. And the fact that this church that was probably mostly from local Jews, if you think about where they were at, it was probably the majority, they picked Greek-speaking Jews to deal with the Greek-speaking women because they were the ones with the problem. And so you, can, you can truly see their heart really in all this. And in fact, one of the people they picked wasn't even a true Jew. Like he was a, that, that last one, that Nicholas of Antioch, he was a convert to the Jewish faith. So he wasn't even a Jew at all, but he converted to Judaism and then later on converted to Christianity. And one of the commentators I read kind of wrote this. He says, Satan loves to use an um, unintentional wrong to begin a conflict. The Hebrews were right in their hearts and the Hellenists were right in their facts, which made this a perfect condition for a church-splitting conflict. Satan will jump on anything that he can do. Yet because it was handled correctly, like Satan lost another battle. And I'll just say that this is a huge part of what really makes or breaks a church because conflict is inevitable in a church. We're going to talk about this in a little bit. But, but, but if handled in love, if handled in wisdom, if handled God's way, 
on the other side of it, a church can grow stronger and closer than ever before. And this is really kind of what we see in the, like, these last couple of verses. Like these seven were presented to the apostles in verse six, and they prayed for them. They laid their hands on them. The idea was was they they passed on authority to these people, authority to these people in front of every in front of everybody else. They became an extension of the apostles' authority to deal with this specific area of ministry and. They obviously did a good job because what happens next, we see in verse 7, is God's message began to spread. People kept on getting saved. Like Satan tried to use this situation to distract the church, but because they trusted in God and acted in love and wisdom, the crisis was, was, was averted. The people were taken care of. The apostles were able to stay prayed up and studied up and focused on proclaiming the message of Christ. And not only did multitudes of more people get saved, look who else got saved. Jewish priests, many of the Jewish priests, I mean, these were the ones that worked in the temple with all the religious leaders who were telling them to quit speaking in Jesus' name. And, and now not only, like, have they reached people, not only have they reached the, kind of the, just the normies, the everyday people, they were now infiltrating the temple itself with the good news of the gospel. You think that went over very well with the religious elites? Probably not. And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks here, um, how they kind of handled that in a not very good way. But now as we think about this kind of the story, you can read stuff like this and go, oh, that's interesting, but a lot of information. But what does that have to do with us? You know, 2,000 years later, what does a story like that have to, how, how does that affect a local church in 2023 America? There's really just two things that, that I want to talk about in application to this story. And one is simply this. I think this is a really good lesson on how to handle conflict in general in a church. Because here's the reality of, of church. Church is made up of people. <laughs> and because church is made up of people, that means we're all human. And because of our humanity, the natural result of that is conflict is going to arise at points. Would you agree? I mean, it, it's just going to happen. And, and a church is no different. It's going to happen here. It's just, it's just the nature of the human race, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's silly stuff. Like, Somebody looks at me the wrong way, right? Or somebody said something that I take wrong. Or, or sometimes people do things that, that bother me. Or sometimes decisions are made that, that I don't like. These things happen. And they are going to happen here. I guarantee you they're going to happen here. They have happened here, right? But, but I will say this. Although there are times when serious conflict has the ability to arise, I really believe when it comes to the church that most conflict is simply a matter of, like, way, way too many assumptions being made on somebody's motives or somebody's character. Like if we could just stop and give people the benefit of the doubt just for a moment before we jump to conclusions, the reality is the vast amount of conflicts would be avoided in, in a church. Like if, here's the reality. Have you ever had a bad day? You ever wake up grumpy? Remember that next time somebody says something that ticks you off. Because they're having one of those days. <laughs> it, it, it does. It just happens. We're human. We get tired. We get stressed out. And those things happen. And, and quite, as on, quite honestly, me included, we are far too sensitive at times. And we take things instantly wrong and instead of giving people like just the benefit of the doubt. So conflict is going to happen, but the question is like, what are we going to do when it comes? Like, will we handle things God's way or are we going to deal with it in love and grace? Are we going to do it God's way or are we going to let Satan kind of take over and control the atmosphere? Like, will we deal with things 
head on? Will we, will we just deal with them or will we take the path that so many churches and so many people take? A conflicts take place, instead of deal with it, they either cause more trouble or run away. I'll go find a different church. I don't want to deal with this, right? But let's not do it that way. If you think about the church of Acts, they could have just gotten mad, gotten ticked off, and left, but they didn't, right? They trusted each other. They, they worked through the conflict. They kept moving forward. Why? Because it started with their love for God. They loved the Lord. Not only did they love the Lord, they loved one another, and they loved their church. They loved what God was doing, and they wanted to see their church move forward. Because there was people out there still that weren't saved. There was no time for conflict in the church because we have way too much to do outside of the church to be dealing with petty things inside of the church. And what was the result? Satan lost. The church kept growing. The message of Christ kept spreading. People kept getting saved. If you think about church conflict, there's a number of biblical principles that we could use and we could talk about those. We're not going to tonight just for the sake of time. Mostly because of this. All those biblical principles, principles of conflict resolution matter not if we first don't have a genuine love for God, a genuine love for one another, and a true commitment to the church. Can I tell you that? Those things are absolutely key. Before we worry about any conflict resolution, if we don't have that, Satan is inevitably going to get in. So the question we have is like, do we love one another? Truly, are we doing what it takes to get to know one another? Because here's the thing. If you know somebody like on a personal level, you can tell when they're just having a bad day. You can tell when something's just wrong. But if you don't know them, we can have some really, really thin skin sometime. And be like, what a jerk. And get just instantly angered. Right? So it's so important that we're, that we're connected, that we're, that we're meeting outside of church, that we're, we're gathering together to get to know one another's personalities, to get to know one another's heart. Because if we don't have that in a church, it becomes a breeding ground for Satan to come in and work. But if we do it God's way, it's just, it, it keeps them out. So one thing is, I think it's a good lesson how to handle conflict. Second and last thing is as a church, I think one lesson we can take from this is we need, to do, we need to be willing to do whatever it takes to allow God to continue to grow our church. And when we think about this church in Acts, it was confronted with a structure problem. And, and when it was confronted, they made the necessary adjustments and they moved on. Now that sounds simple, like, yeah, big deal. You know, they, they did what they needed to do and they moved on. But think about what it took to do that. Like, like one thing it took was for the apostles to actually be willing to let go of some of that authority, to let go of some of that responsibility. There's a lot of leaders that don't want to do that. They like control. They like to make sure things are done. They're going to do it their way, and they don't really trust anybody else. They think they're going to mess it all up, and so they hold on to all these things. And they become a bottleneck in their ministry. We can't have that. So the apostles were able to let go. There was also men that were actually have to be. They actually were had, had to be willing to actually step up and take on this responsibility. And the people had to put their trust in both the apostles and these men to support them. Now, because they did, the apostles were allowed to focus on praying, studying, and preaching. The men who were chosen got to use their giftedness to bless the church and the Lord in a big way, and the people all benefited from it. And God moved. Now, if you think about this simple story, it really is like a focus of, it's like a great commission focus, because 
what, what this allowed them to do was stay focused on the Great Commission, which opened the door for many more people to be saved. Like, if they hadn't adjusted, like, the apostles' preaching would have suffered, the spiritual lives of the people would have suffered, the problems would have just gotten worse, and the gospel message would have been hindered. Now, think about, think about the Great Commission for a moment. Now, when I say the Great Commission, I'm talking about Matthew 28, 18-20, that, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth been given to me, therefore go and make disciples, Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Right? So they're supposed to go and reach people, bring them into the church, baptize them, and then begin teaching them. Now, as you think about the Great Commission, what's the focus? Is the focus on physical growth of the church or spiritual growth of the church? By show of hands, who thinks it's the physical growth of the church? Who thinks it's the spiritual growth of the church? Are there any real wise ones out there that think it's both? Bingo. It's both. When you think about the Great Commission, part of the focus is reaching more people. It is about physical growth. Because if we're out there sharing the gospel with people and bringing them in, what's the natural result? The church is going to grow. But once they get here, we have to invest into their lives so they begin to grow spiritually as well. Like both are needed to accomplish the Great commission, but when we start doing that, we're going to have some of the same problems here as they had. When we start growing, and, we're, and I'll be totally honest with you, we're, we're there now. We have some of these structural issues that we're trying to work through right now. Like as the church grows, the natural result of that is growth pains begin to take place, but it's not all that bad of a thing as long as we're ready for it. Now as our church grows, I'll just tell you that we're going to have to be ready to make some adjustments. We've, we've already talked about this in our leadership team, that there's some structural things that we're working on to, to help us be ready for, for God to bring more people. We're going to have to adjust how we do ministry. We're going to have to find new ways to meet the needs of people spiritually that we reach. Like, think about this. If we're actually out there bringing people in and inviting, and we start seeing 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 more people coming that are just these baby Christians that, we re- that, that, we, that we've reached, do you think maybe we're going to need some people to invest into them? Some people to come alongside them to be willing to be able to, to spend some time with them one by one and help them understand who God is and what this whole Christian life is all about? Absolutely. Do you think we're going to need some ministries that are maybe ministries we don't even have right now to be able to meet those needs to those people? Absolutely. But can I tell you something? You know what that's going to take? People. It's going to take us working together. It's going to take people stepping up and being willing to lead in ministries, people stepping up and serving in ministries. It's going to take people willing to lead small group Bible studies and have people over in their homes to invest in them. It's going to take people willing to take somebody alongside of them and disciple them. It's going to take some sacrifice. It's going to take us getting out of our comfort zone, but can I tell you something? It's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it because exactly the result happened here will happen here as well. What happened in the book of Acts is the gospel kept on moving. The church was healthy and it kept on growing. And that'll happen here too. If we do it right, God's word's going to be taught. People are going to grow in their faith. There's going to be people that, were, that, that are able, going to be able to use their gifts. You know you all have a gift? If you know Jesus, you've got a gift. And you know what that gift's for? It's to use in the ministry of this church. And the blessing of you using that gift is you're going to be fulfilled in using that gift. You're going to be a blessing to the people around you, and you're going to honor God and be a blessing to Him as well. And as we do that together, 
people are going to be saved, lives are going to be changed, and most importantly, God is going to be honored. To me, that's the point of this, these few verses here is, you know what, as we grow as a church, we're going to be dealing with some stuff. Conflict's going to arise, structural issues are going to arise, let's, let's meet it head on together. Let's walk hand in hand, let's not run away, let's, let's bind ourselves just to, to one another and, and walk through this thing as the family of God together. And as we do, can I tell you something? It's unlimited what God can do through that. When a church is united in heart and spirit, united in mission, when they're focused, when they love their church so much, no matter what happens, we're staying focused. We have people out there to reach. God can use a church like that. So let's be that church. Let's honor the Lord that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for um, this, this very simple and practical lesson that we learned here tonight, Lord, from these first disciples. And Lord, um, and I'm so thankful for the church that we have. I was thinking about this this week as I was preparing this, Father. We have a church full of people that love you, that love one another, and that love this church. And God, that's a blessing. Do we have room to grow? Yep, absolutely. Are we going to need to make some adjustments? Absolutely, God. But by your grace and through your strength, you're going to be able to help us through that. So, Father, I pray you'd give us wisdom. I pray you'd give us understanding, Lord, on, and, and how to do these things. And and how, to, and how to adjust. And, and Because, God, we want to be a church that impacts the world. We don't want to be a country club, Lord. We don't want to be a church that just goes through the motions and does our thing and goes home. Lord, we, we, we want to be a church, Father, that is bringing you honor, that is reaching our communities, that is affecting this world with the gospel. And the only way that's going to happen is if we have a strong foundation to build on here. So, God, give us wisdom as leaders. Father, give us wisdom as church. Give us patience, God, with one another. And through that, Father, I pray you just grow our church and be glorified through it all. Heavenly Father, I love you, I thank you, I praise you, and I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. As we close, we're going to sing just a simple...